Okay, so this week's parsha is Parshas Bishalach. Parshas Bishalach. While we were gone last week, while we were on vacation, the Jews left Egypt. So if anyone missed it, we can always um, come back next year. But we missed a lot of exciting things while we were gone. So next year, we have to make sure not to go on vacation while the Jews leave Egypt. Because imagine if they didn't leave Egypt, we wouldn't be here. So um, <laughs> I'm just kidding around. Um, but basically, the idea is that the Jews left Egypt. Parashat they are out in the desert. And um, that's really the setting where the Parashat begins. But he um it happened when Pharaoh and Paro sent out the people. God did not leave them by the way of the land of the Philistines. This is on page 366, 367 in the blue art scroll. For God said, perhaps the it was very interesting to note. I found, I uncovered or discovered a new safer, a new book, which is not new, but it's new to me, from Rabbi Tzvi Magensi. Now, a lot of you, or most of you, or all of you um, from St. Louis know who he was. Um, and he has a book on, I don't know, his children, I assume, put it out. I'm not sure if it's from his writings or it's from his speeches, but be it as it may, he um, put out a safer on the parsha, and he says something very interesting. The first thing, the first like entry on this week's parsha goes as follows. And I guess he was a pretty tough, uh, tough. Um, I mean, he's pretty intense things in that book. I don't know if everyone. Uh, I don't know. I guess I don't know how he got away with saying these things in, the, in those days in, in Zanzibar. But he says, he says, but he bishal paras. I'm listening, and I'm going to say or. Is not so intense. Right? The first, um, I think someone is echoing. I'm gonna, I think Mrs. I think we're good now, right? Fine. So I'm just gonna mute everyone because there's an echo. I hope that's okay with you. Please unmute yourself if you want to ask a question. Um, it says, by he power it happened when Pharaoh sent other people. And then Rabbi McGenzie points out the first mistake the Jews made after they left Egypt was they said that Paro sent us out. Instead of giving the credit to God and Hashem, they said, And when, behold, when Pharaoh sent us out of Egypt, we should always remember, he says, you should always remember that even though we can see things in a very physical way, we should never lose sight and lose focus that God is the one who runs the world and takes care of everything. That was his big, his big, uh, his first entry on this week's partnership. Okay, so nice, nice little aside from Rabbi McGenzie. Okay, let us um, continue on. So if we're just gonna jump into right into the thick of things over here. In the verse, in chapter 13, we're in the middle of that, verse 19. It says, so they're going and they're leaving, and Vayikach Moshe, and Moshe, Vayikach Moshe, Atzmos Yosef, Moshe took 
the bones of Yosef Ima with him. Ki heshbeah heshbeah as Bnei Yisrael. Ki heshbeah heshbeah as Bnei Yisrael. So Yosef um, made the Jews or his brothers. He made them make a shvua, make take an oath that they will take his bones out of Egypt. So now, after many, many years, after 200 years or whatever, however many years it was, Yosef is coming, I'm sorry, Moshe is coming and he's taking the bones of Yosef out of Egypt, okay? So the question that we're going to ask, we're going to start off with is, what is this doing here? First of all, Think about it. The Jews have already left Egypt, and this um, this uh, part of the story of taking the bones clearly happened before they left Egypt because his bones were where his bones were in Egypt. So, so it's a little bit out of place. So the Torah is telling us something very interesting over here, and there is a famous concept that is brought down in the Medrash. I'm sorry, in the Gemara. The Gemara in Sota tells us that there is a pasuk, there is a verse in Mishlei, a verse in Mishlei that says, in Mishlei in English is Proverbs, right? I was messed, I was mixed these things up. Proverbs that says that Moshe was called a chacham leiv, chacham leiv yikach mitzvos, a person with a wise heart. A person with a wise heart, a wise person, takes mitzvos with him. That was referring to who? Referring to Moshe Rabbeinu, referring to Moses. When he left Egypt, what were all the Jews doing? Does anyone here know what all the Jews were doing? All that everyone else was doing? What was, what was everyone else doing when they when they when they were about to depart from Egypt? So the Torah tells us. If you want to um, answer, please feel free to unmute yourself. Uh, I guess they were getting their neighbors gold and silver and mm -hmm. all the belongings they had together, their livestock. Um, also, a side question real quick. How how much time elapsed from Joseph's death till Moses leaving with Israel? Right. Roughly. So I, it's funny. I was trying to do that math on the fly, but I, I wasn't doing it. So... So Joseph was the first one who died of the tribes. Um, and um, the last one was around 87 years. So he died, he was 137. It was around 100 years. No, it must have been longer than that. Um, if I, I don't have it in front of me. And someone asked me, Rabbi, one of my kids, are you allowed to take, I, I guess in reference to this, are you, obviously you are allowed halakhically to take out somebody's bones to remove them for whatever reason to a different site? Yes. So that's, the, that's, that's opening up a whole halakhic question, which is going to be beyond the scope of the partial class. I'm trying to see if anyone has a new I don't want to leave one out now in the middle of the class. If anyone has a new art school Hamish, the old ones on the IAB doesn't have anything in the back, but the new ones, if they were printed in the last couple of years, three to five years, in the back, they have all these charts. 
all these pictures. If anyone has it, you'll you find that they will tell you exactly when he died. Oh, maybe I do have it in a second. I don't have it here. So if anyone has that, you can you literally have the exact second of when he died and all that, the exact day of when he died and all that stuff. And and you can get it. I just don't have it on the top of my head. So it was over a hundred years. Um, but the Jews were in, I'll just say it like this: the Jews were in in actual labor. So the labor, the actual hard labor was for 87, 86 years out of the 210 years. Because the last bit was the last bit was was the plagues and the plagues during the plagues they weren't actually working. And in the first years they weren't working because as long as any of the tribes were still alive, they weren't working either. So that was that's what we'll shave off a few years here and shave off a few years there. It was over a hundred years. I don't know the exact number. But that's fine. So I don't know. Um, but back to the other question you asked, yes, there are definitely times and places where you can um, untake away someone's bones, especially in the case of Yosef, where his bones were, were in a terrible, terrible place, and they were in the bottom, depending on which measures you go with, either they were in the bottom of the, of the river or they were in the middle of a, a, a uh, uh, one of these pyramids in the middle of hundreds of other coffins of some other, other mummies or whatever. And, but whatever it was, it wasn't in a holy place. In order to, to move it, a lot of times you have different areas where let's say you have a non-Jewish a non-Jewish government, or sometimes even as sad as it sounds, even a Jewish government, um, will want to, let's say, build a highway or a city through a cemetery, and they'll destroy the cemetery. So people will go and right, they paid a lot of money, and they'll dig up all these graves and move them to other places. So definitely in the right time and place, there are cases and scenarios where you can um, move um, a grave. I know my, my great-grandfather, not exactly the same thing, but my great-grandfather, he had his leg amputated for, he, had, he was, it was uh, he had an infection and then he didn't amputate his leg. So the luck is when you, some, when it, when a person's a full limb gets amputated, it needs to be buried. So they bury it, and then the halacha is when a person passes away, you have to take it out and then rebury it together with the person's body. So if the person wants to be buried in the same place, it's great. So you could just right, right, and just dig it up and put it back in. But if my great grandfather wanted to be buried in Eretz Israel. Want to be buried in Israel, so they went to Toronto. They went to the place where I was buried. They dug up the the leg, and then they brought it to Israel together with the rest of his body. Okay, um, but back to the our point, which was so like Steve so beautifully said, and like Dan was nodding so beautifully, um, that all of the rest of the Jews over there they were going around to all the Egyptians, and they were taking their spoils. They were taking all the all the gold and silver. In fact, one of the ways that God paid back the Egyptians was the fact that the Egyptians conned the Jews into working for them. They first started paying the Jews, and their whole little scheme of how they got the Jews to work for them. Eventually, they got them enslaved. So the, this was some sort of a a a mida kenega mida mida. It's a measurement. For, for God pays measure for measure, 
and the Jews, so to speak, conned the Egyptians out of all their money, so to speak. Um, eventually, um, they all perished in, they all died in the, in the, uh, in the, when the sea split and then stopped splitting on top of the Egyptians and all the Egyptians died in the water. And then all the Jews kept all the money. But the idea over here is that all of the Jews were taking money and the riches and the spoils and Moshe was doing something else entirely. What was he busy with? He was busy with digging up the bones of Yosef, finding the bones of Yosef. Okay, so why was he doing that? What was the importance? Can anyone figure out the importance of Yosef's bones? Does anyone know the importance of Yosef's bones? Why is Yosef's bones so significant? Well, he made somebody make a rabbi a commitment to do so. Um, I forgot who he requested that of, that he not be left in Egypt. Exactly, perfect. So he, we mentioned before in the verse, in passing, we just threw it out there, but that's exactly what Steve was mentioning. The, the, he made his, all his brothers, actually, all his brothers swear, and then that oath went on to their children. Basically, in essence, the whole Jewish nation couldn't leave Egypt unless they took him out. So it was an oath. What would have happened if, it's an interesting like food for thought, what would have happened if they would have left without his bones, right? So in essence, just with Steve's answer, in essence, nothing. I mean, they would have, they would have, um, um, they wouldn't have fulfilled their oath. They would have gone against their oath. They would have gone against the word, which is a terrible thing, but, Right, we see that Pharaoh, Paro, hid Yosef's body, hid his bones. The reason why he hid his bones, either on the bottom of the, of the river or in whatever other way he hid it, which would, it, would be, it would not be, would be undetectable, he hid it because he knew that the power of the Jewish people's oath was so powerful that he felt confident that the Jews would never leave. They would never leave Egypt without Joseph's bones. Now, he didn't realize that Moshe could just find his bones because Moshe was more powerful than him, right? Moshe threw the name of God and the, 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 the box, the Aron came up and he took it with him. Power didn't get that part, but without the divine intervention, he was convinced, he was confident that the Jewish people would never leave because they would never um, go against their word. That's the power of, of a person's word. It's a very, it's a tremendous proof for that. In the 21st century, it wasn't even so long ago where this concept, 21st century, we have such a desensitized, we, we are so desensitized to, to words that mean, are, mean so, so little to most of us. I shouldn't say that. Hopefully to all of us, words are still powerful and meaningful, but for most of the world, words are so cheap these days that we don't even understand. Paro was confident by by hiding the bones of Yosef that they just they, they that they wouldn't leave. That's a fascinating food for thought. Just a fascinating thing to think about. The power of 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 of, of, of keeping your word. How important it is to keep a, keep your word. Okay.
So that's what you also, that's why it was so important. But last year, I'm not gonna um, hold anyone accountable for last year. That was a long time ago. But last year we talked about a very interesting thing, which is the sea, and later on in the parsha, the sea splits, okay? And there's a very interesting chain of events, okay? I'm gonna read you the words. It goes like this. Um, the Jews are running to eat away from the Egyptians. They're heading to the sea, and they are right at the seabed, so the raging sea in front of them. And the Egyptians are chasing behind them. And they're stuck. They're stuck between a rock and a hard place. What are they going to do? There's nowhere to go. They, they turn out to Moshe. Moshe turns to Hashem. Cry out, God, God, please save us. What does God tell them? Can anyone guess what God tells them? What does a Jew do? This is an um, open question to everyone. What does a Jew do when he's in a stuck in a between a rock and a hard place? When he's in a real rough situation, right? When you're sitting there and just everything is coming crashing against you, what do you do? Anyone? Anyone? Unmute yourself. I can't you hear. Pray. Anything. You pray. You pray. Right? Dan, what do you think? I can't hear you. You're, you're muted. What Steve said. Okay. Um, Alan and Vivian, what do you guys think? <laughs> I'm gonna get a, or, or to have faith. You pray and have to do something. Oh, very good. So Vivian said that, boom, she just nailed it. But the first thing we all would do is, we all would answer, I think, is we have to pray. Everyone, since we were in diapers, we, I hope, we were, we were taught that a Jew's power is the power of prayer. We pray, we pray, we pray. If you're a real atheist, hopefully, um, Hopefully we are, none of us are anywhere close to that. So maybe you have a different world. But if you're a believer in God, the first, the, one of the first tenet of Judaism, or first tenet of any religion for that matter, but all the more so Judaism, is you pray, right? Great. Okay. Now, if you think that I was bringing that out and I was going to go around the table to ask everyone their opinion for no reason, now you're about, they, I'm going to blow your brains out now. You're not going to blow your socks. Okay, you ready? Let's see the next verse. Okay. Hashem el Moshe. God tells Moshe, Matitzak a lie. Why do you cry out to me? Speak to the Jews, speak to the children of Israel, and let them go journey forth. Basically, God said, go jump in the lake. Go, go jump, literally, go jump in the lake. Why are you crying out to me, okay? That sounds vaguely familiar from last year. I made the same joke last year, probably. Okay, so God is saying, why are you crying out to me? Why are you praying? Go get out of here. Go, go jump in the water. What's going on? What is going on? Something is fishy. We usually pray. We say, and God's saying, why are you praying? Go, right? So the Medrash tells us something very, very interesting. When it comes to the splitting of the sea, okay? 
the sea, so to speak, had a big conundrum, okay? The sea is commanded by God to flow and to rage and to, and to be very, right, to be, to be a sea, to be a raging body of water. The Jews are coming, and Moshe tells the sea to split for us, okay? Save us, protect us. What happens? The sea, the yam, the sea, tells Moshe, says, why should I split for you? I do my job to serve God. And you're telling me to go against God's will. You don't do go against nature, go against God's will. And to split for you. Why should I do that for you? So we're in a big, a big pickle over here. So God turns to Moshe and, and, and Moshe turns to God and says, what do we do? So God says, he has a point. The sea has a point. You know why? The sea said something very interesting. The sea says, I look at the Jews and I look at the non-Jews, at the Egyptians, and I see that the Egyptians serve idols and the Jews served idols. We know that the Jews were in a terrible situation spiritually. They were saved from Egypt by the skin of their teeth because of a few merits that they had, so to speak. But they were in a pretty rough situation. They had a lot of a lot of baggage, a lot of baggage, as we would say. They did a lot of sins, a lot of errors. And the sea says, why do you still you guys? You're not any better than them. Well, because you didn't change your clothes. Okay, mazel tov, you didn't change your clothes. But you're just as much idol worshipers, idol worshipers as they are. So why should I change for you? Why should I change my way of nature for you guys? You guys are anything special. So God tells Moshe, he has a point. So prove to them, show the sea that you indeed are special, that there's something special about you. There's something different about you. Something that you went against your nature. And you can show the sea that you went against your nature then the sea now will be forced to go against its nature. So you just say, look, my nature is to go what is to is to do one thing, and I went completely above and beyond the call of duty. I went completely above and beyond for God. Then the sea will be forced to recognize that it also has to go above and beyond and split for you and do a what we call a miracle. So the reason why prayer wasn't enough, it wasn't that prayer wasn't valid is that it wasn't enough because the Jews needed an extra merit because they were really, really not in a, in a, in a spiritually safe position. They were in a very, very low level spiritual. So what does the Medrash tell us? The Medrash tells, lists us a lot of different things that the sea, um, that Moshe, so to speak, or God or whatever it is, told, showed the sea. And one of those are what? Can you guess? Trying to put together the whole class until now. One of the things was one of the Midrashim tell us that the sea looked and they saw the bones of Yosef and then, oh, Yosef is here. We have to split. Okay. So now we're going to go a little bit full circle. So now we see it wasn't just that. That, that Moshe was going to save the bones of Yosef because of Steve's reason, which is true, 100% true. It wasn't only because of that, because then it's a little bit out of order. There's no, that could have been said over last week's parasha. It's not necessarily intrinsically connected to our 
parsha of the splitting of the sea, which is the primary, the main story, the main theme of this week's Torah portion. But now we can understand exactly what it's doing here. It says Moshe needed to find the bones of Yosef, bring them along, because otherwise the sea wouldn't have split. The sea wouldn't have split for Moshe, for the Jews. For bones of Yosef, the sea split. So now we understand why it's so important that Moshe went before they left Egypt, he went to find the bones of Yosef, because otherwise the sea wouldn't have split. Is that a beautiful answer? Beautiful thought. Okay. Now, what? This is a little bit of an aside, but I would be remiss if I didn't finish tying up the loose ends. So, what in fact was so great about Yosef's bones? What did he do so special? If everyone remembers, anyone remembers back in Parshish Vayeshev, there's a famous story with Ashish Potiphar, his, his master's wife. He was he got into a real situation with her, and she used to pester him every day, and she got dressed up and got more dressed up, and then whatever, got less dressed up for him. And, and he was a 17-year-old boy, a 17-year-old teenager, at the height of his, uh, um, we would call his the, the, the Yetzirah for these, the evil inclination for these type of things. And he was alone in a country which was full of this type of garbage. And the whole religion, the whole culture was all full of this stuff. And he didn't have any family, didn't have any parents, didn't have anyone to, to pressure him one way or the other. He was totally alone. And he went and he went totally above and beyond. And he saved himself. He ran away. He got himself locked up in prison for years because of the story, because he um, overcame this big test. And he really, really, really um, exempl um, exemplified the, the idea of going above and beyond and going against a, a person's um, natural desires to the nth degree for the sake of God. And it was because of these this story that he overcame this crazy, difficult test. Because of that story and that time where he overcame that, that merit was the cause, or at least the, one of the causes for the, or one of the merits for the seat to split. Okay. So now we understand what's going on. Now we see the importance of this little mitzvah, we'll call it, this little mitzvah of saving the bones of Yosef because many, many years earlier, there was a, an, a, a shavua, an oath taken by the brothers, great, great, great grandparents, however many greats before. And we see that there's a, 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 has a ripple effect that there's a whole um, um, spider web of details and stories that are all attached here. And it's not just doing a mitzvah. Every single thing that we do has a tremendous impact on the whole world and the way the world runs. In fact, um, I'm learning um, a special book, a special saver called Nefesh HaChayim, written by Rav Chaim Belazhin, the call him the grandfather of the yeshiva movement, of what we, the yeshiva movement we have today. Basically, almost all of our yeshivas today can be traced back to Rebchaim Velazhin in the Lithuanian movement, the Hasidic movement, have their own, their own uh, lineage, whatever you call it, their own uh, um, family tree of, of yeshivas. But ours, 
whether it's Nerizwell Baltimore or Chavetz Chaim, MTI, or Liquid BMG, or anything, everything else in the middle, even um, Yeshiva Suyitzah Kachanan, um, YU, all these yeshivas, they all can trace the roots back to, right, one way or the other, to Rav Chaim um, Malajan. Chaim of Malajan, his famous yeshiva of Malajan in, in, I guess, call it Russia, or at least the, the Tsarist uh, Russia from those days. I don't know. As my grandparents said, in those days, the borders moved week by week. So I don't know exactly uh, what it would be called nowadays. Um, so he, what a, his magnum opus, we call it, it's called Nefesh Chaim, and it's about Torah philosophy and all these different types of things. And he just, in the beginning, his first main theme that he talks about is the idea that we sometimes lose sight of the fact that every single mitzvah we do is of tremendous value and tremendous importance. We fail to realize that every single thing that we do in this world directly connects right up to the top. Our neshama, our soul, comes from the highest, highest levels, higher than all the angels. It's really right next to the heavenly throne of God. Again, whatever that means, I've never, in my physical form, I've never been there. I don't know what it looks like. But in the highest level, and he put us, so to speak, connected our soul to a body, which is the most mortal um, thing, element of the chain between spirituality, between God himself and us. We are at the bottom so that our soul and our body together collectively can have a, an effect all across, top to bottom. We, have a, we connect the top to the bottom. Our body and our soul connect the top to the bottom. And every time we do a mitzvah, it ripple effect all the way up to the top, 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 right next to God. And every single time we do a sin on a vera has the same ripple effect all the way up to God. And it's like doing an avera in front of God himself. And when we do a mitzvah, it's, like a mitzvah. it's just a tremendous importance, a tremendous value. And he goes on and on and on about different Kabbalistic aspects, which I, to me is all Chinese. But the, the, the idea, he talks about all these different things, how important every mitzvah is. And there's a famous... There's a famous um, parable um, set over from the Chavetz Chaim. And the Chavetz Chaim says like this. Um, Once upon a time, it's a parable, it's not a real story. I've heard it in many different forms, but I'm going to share in the form that I heard it first from my Rebbe. Um, There was a guy who lived in a nice little village with his wife and his 12 kids, and they were poor beyond poor. They were completely destitute, and he, they had a really, really rough situation. They couldn't afford to feed their kids bread or water even, not even forget about luxuries, barely afford anything, and they didn't know what to do. Crying out to God, crying out prayer, all these things, nothing was helping. That's what I do. Finally, one day, he, he hears of this ship is going to this faraway island, and in this island, the streets are paved with gold and diamonds. Right? Sounds like America by the gold rush. But this was a real, real island that, right, everything was diamonds and gold. Anyways, my mother wrote a whole book about 
Candy. It's called Candy Island. I think it's 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 a base, it's a very similar style book. That kids, you end up on a Candy Island. Hold it. If you ever want to buy that book, um, I don't know if it's for sale, but it's a good book to teach your kids not to eat junk food, or your grandkids, or your cousins, or your uncles, or your or yourself for that matter. Not the junk. Anyways, to make a long story short, this guy finally he mortgages his house or he borrows money to pay for the passage of the ship, and he ends up in this island. And lo and behold, the famous, famous um, rumors indeed are true. He lands on the island, and the streets are covered in gold, and the bushes are growing gold. And there are diamonds hanging from the trees. And there are diamonds all over the place. And they, there's, there's, a, there's a book as a kid, there's a book called, you know, it's called 21 Balloons. I had to read it as a kid. And they end up in Krakatoa, which is this famous volcano. And in the fiction novel of the book, they made this Krakatoa before the volcano blew up the whole place. Um, they made this basically this big city full of diamonds and the whole thing. It was a whole crazy story. Which reminds me of this story. Anyways, back to our, back to our, uh, see, even in yeshiva, we learn things during English. So back to, back to our um, parable. So this guy, for as soon as he gets to this island, he goes running down and grabs like a whole big thing of diamonds, stuffs them into his pockets and all the pockets can find. He's going berserk. He doesn't know what to do with himself. He's full of joy and excitement. His family will never have to worry about money again. Okay? And he realizes he's hungry. So he walks into the grocery store and he says, he puts a loaf of bread on the counter. He says, pulls out this five-carat diamond and says, yeah, you have change for me? And the guy laughs. says, pay me with diamonds? What value does a little piece of glass at? It's but they're beautiful. It's so beautiful. It's shiny. It's stunning. The guy says, "Yeah, you know, it's shiny. It's stunning. It's beautiful." But I, you know what I mean? I go outside and just scoop up as many as I want. They have no value here. So the guy says, "So they don't have any value to you?" Value? Value? You see them all over the place. You know what we use as currency in this island? We use fish. Fish? Ew, fish. Say so exactly, fish get spoiled, they're hard to catch. And all it gives them a whole spill of how importance of fish and how the fish is the biggest luxury. And that's their currency. Their currency in the island is fish. And these fish, you have to store them in the proper storehouses. Otherwise, they go bad, freeze dry them, all these sticks of how to get your fish. And, anyways, really interesting. Okay, fine. So he takes this loaf of bread on credit and he goes, he opens up a business, he's push cart, whatever it is. Eventually, he ends up making some money. And he starts collecting his fish and he starts getting um, into the ways of the people and his fish business and his this. And then the whole thing, he buys a warehouse full of the special fancy freezers that store these fish. And he maybe even gets a little. 3.55 interest rate on his fish savings account um, from the local bank. If he goes to American Express or whatever other and, uh, Syn Synchrony, whatever, or Marcus by Goldman Sachs, and and all these things, and they have a special bonds, right? Recession-proof fish uh, 
I'm thinking all these things going on, and he completely forgets about the diamonds because diamonds now to him look like dust, pretty beautiful dust. Anyways, after a few months, he decides he has an, amassed enough wealth to bring back to his family. So he takes all of his wonderful, wonderful money, his whole Parnassa, six months worth of work, all his fish, and he packs them into crates, and he has like $600 million worth of fish sitting in his crates, and he hires a boat, a ship, and the ship comes, and he's taking his whole thing. And to make a long story short, he comes back to his family, he hires movers, and he unloads right containers and containers of fish and he runs into his family and says sprinzy all the kids come 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 look i we are rich we don't have to think about money for the rest of our life and the kids and the grandkids lives either we have enough money forever and his wife and kids run out and they're so excited they look and they go huh what's that smell it stinks here whoo odor what is going on here and they open up this thing and this foul stinky fish and like what in the world have you lost your marbles what is going on here he says did you understand this fish is the most valuable thing in the world you don't get it this fish can buy us everything and anything in the whole world and like what have you been smoking you are totally and 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 they don't know what to do with it and he realizes that he made a big mistake. He made a big mistake. He totally got sucked into the tendency of this island. He didn't realize that this island lived differently than everywhere else in the world. Everywhere else in the world, no one forgot that diamonds have value. In this island, they live differently. So what happens? He just totally does not do it himself. He's totally jet lagged, all things. He goes to sleep. He lies on the bed. He falls asleep. So his wife doesn't know what to do. She's crying. She's pulling her hair out. Anyways, she goes to do laundry. Like every Baruch Hashem, every good wife. She goes to do laundry. And she's digging into one of his pants pockets of his original suit that he wore. He hasn't worn the suit since because he's been rich since then. He doesn't wear, wear the old suit that he wore as a popper. And she digs into his pocket and he, she pulls out Right, seven or eight huge diamonds, and she's jumping for joy. I said, Oh, we're rich, we're rich. We have diamonds, diamonds, diamonds. I said, All excited. And she and he wakes up from his nap from his sleep, and she's like, We're rich, we're rich. What happened? Like, I found seven diamonds in your pocket. And she's all oh, right, those are the diamonds that I picked up on my first day here. Wow, oh my gosh. And then he clicks in his head, says, he took seven diamonds home and took him a grand total of like three minutes to pick those diamonds up. Can you imagine if I would have spent my whole six months, my whole year picking up diamonds? Forget about me. The whole I could have supported the whole Jewish nation. Because I could no Jew would ever ever been poor. <clears throat> the just tremendous wealth, unfathomable. Even from the little that he did take back, he was able to support his family. And of course, this is only a parable. The nimshal is very, very clear, is that really we all belong, our neshama, our soul belongs in the next one. 
in the next world, in the Olam Haba, the currency used there is mitzvos. Mitzvos is the currency. We come, God puts our bodies in this world, and our bodies are like this guy on the island, right? Person, he chaps a mitzvah here, chaps a mitzvah there, he grabs a mitzvah here, grabs a mitzvah there, and yes, they have value to them. And one day when you empty out your pockets and do laundry, you'll find a person who doesn't live his life full of Torah, he doesn't do Shabbos, he doesn't keep kosher, he doesn't learn Torah, he may find some mitzvahs. He may have given a nice money to amount of money to charity here or there. He may have done things and he will find those diamonds. They will be there. They will be there in his pocket. But that's like this guy with his seven diamonds that took him a few little, a few minutes of work, a few minutes of effort. The the idea that we can use our whole lives, we can spend our whole lives using the currency of this world and just imagine for a moment, that's like going, coming to the next world with a big container full or dozens of containers full of fish, of moldy, smelly fish. That's what it is. In this world, we value money, we value riches, we look up to all these people who are powerful and glamour and, and, and good looking. All these things are beautiful and wonderful in this world. In the next world, that's like smelly old moldy fish. It's like rotten fish. And the reality is, the reality is that really what we're here for, we're here, we're here for a purpose. We're here for a mere, a mere, if you're lucky, you're here for 120 years. And in the grand scheme of things, of eternity. 120 years is like going to the island for, for a month or two. We have to remember, we have to never lose sight of our goal. Our goal is to be connected to God and realize that the, 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 the power of every mitzvah, even if we can do dozens or gazillions of mitzvahs every day or every second or every minute, every single mitzvah is way, way more precious than the largest diamond you could ever find. And, and the power and the, the importance of every mitzvah cannot be, cannot be taken for granted. We cannot minimize it. And that's the lesson of the parsha, of this part of the parsha. Of chacham le'vigach mitzvahs, a wise person grabs mitzvahs. Grab mitzvahs. We grab the mitzvahs. Not just, oh, yeah, take one here, take one there. And take one there and, and maybe get one there. We'll check our box. We did a mitzvah today. We did a chesed today. Have beautiful. A wise person stays focused on his goal. His goal is to amass the largest amount, the largest warehouse of diamonds you can possibly get, not fish. And with that, I like to wish everyone a good Shabbos, have a wonderful Shabbos. Thank you for listening. Thank you. Thank you for coming. Thank you, Rabbi.